Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Hey everyone, Mark Bianchi here from the Cowan Energy team with another installment of our Energy Transition Podcast series, where we're currently focused on small modular and advanced nuclear reactors. Today we're joined by John Gorman, who is president and CEO of the Canadian Nuclear Association, or CNA as they're often called. Canada is a really interesting market to watch for nuclear because they're super supportive of the technology, have an extensive refurbishment program for their existing fleet, and see nuclear being a major component of their energy transition. They also have some ambitious plans around SMRs that we'll discuss, and Canada is going to be a very important market to watch for these SMR deployments. What I found interesting about John is he has a background in renewables, which in some circles is viewed as being in competition with nuclear. I think this exemplifies the collaborative approach that Canada is taking in their energy transition, which you'll hear throughout our discussion. So sit back and enjoy as we spend some time with John Gorman learning about the Canadian nuclear market. John, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate having you here. Maybe to kick it off, you could tell us a little bit about your background and, and re- what brought you to CNA. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, delighted to be here. Yeah, what an interesting story when I, I reflect on it in terms of how I ended up in nuclear, uh, because uh, for, for those folks uh, who know me outside of the nuclear world, it's it's been for my almost uh, two decades of work in renewables. So I, I come to the, the nuclear space after serving with utilities and uh, being a, a developer of uh, renewable uh, projects, uh, being Canada's designate to the International uh, Energy Agency for Renewables on the solar side, and uh, as uh, president and CEO of the Canadian Solar Industries Association for about uh, seven years. And I I spent the last two years of my mandate at uh, the Solar Association merging, working with my counterpart at the Wind Association to to merge solar, wind, and uh, battery storage into a new sort of super association we have here called the Canadian Renewable Energy Association. So a long history in electricity and, and renewables, Mark. It was, a, it was a conscious decision to get into electricity and, and clean electricity about, you know, uh, 20 24 years ago now um, I wanted to I wanted to marry what I did in my day job with my my own personal ambition to to make a positive contribution to addressing climate change I don't think that 24 years ago I understood how important clean electricity would be to to the energy transition and to the decarbonization of our economies uh, but um, understanding now, as I think most of us do, that electricity, clean electricity, is absolutely central to this energy transition. I'm I'm delighted to be in the in the space. And and as to your question about why I made the switch over to nuclear, it's because at a certain point, um, after having worked with a lot of great people here in Canada and internationally, and having achieved quite a bit, especially in solar, in terms of bringing down the the cost of solar. Of course, we've seen some incredible adoption of, of solar, some growth of solar. It seemed to me that that uh, renewables was was well set to play an important role going forward. And I looked at at nuclear and and saw that uh, there needed to be a lot of work done there to bring nuclear to the forefront. Um, we're going to need absolutely every 
clean electricity technology at our disposal to to fuel switch and to electrify our economies. Um, wind and solar are important parts of that, and so are hydrogen and other other things. But we're going to need a lot of nuclear. Uh, is the bottom line. There's no there's no pathway to a net zero future without a lot of new nuclear in the mix. And so I I uh, I'm excited to be part of a uh, a growing uh, contingent of policymakers and advocates and industry experts who who are helping um, make the the most of nuclear to to help bring it to its its new potential. That's fantastic and and a really unique perspective that you you bring um, having worked in the on the renewable side as well. Maybe talk a little bit about the the association and and sort of what the the mandate is there and the the mission. What does the membership look like? Just give us a a, a little more flavor for it. I, I sort of think of it as you know I'm familiar with the Nuclear Energy Institute in the U.S. Um, um, and I sort of think of this as the Canadian version, but maybe maybe you've got some more color you'd you'd share on that. It is a it is a Canadian version of uh, the NEI. Um, you know, work very very closely and collaboratively our our two organizations and and especially me and uh, Maria Korsnik, the the head of uh, NEI, uh, su- such a uh, such a terrific leader and collaborative person. Uh, we're we're working together to explore uh, a, a nuclear ecosystem, sort of continental uh, nuclear collaboration between our industries and our governments um, and our regulators, uh, and we're making a lot of progress on that front. Um, in the Canadian context, the Nuclear Association here, the Canadian Nuclear Association, it's a national uh, advocacy uh, body that uh, seeks to educate, uh, perform research and, and policy, bring forward um, sound policy uh, recommendations to to policymakers at the provincial and, and federal levels of government to allow nuclear to uh, really deliver to its full potential. We represent the full nuclear ecosystem here in Canada, and that's saying something because uh, we've we've got the entire the entire ecosystem here in Canada, right? We we've got the uranium mining. Um, we're the second largest uh, exporter of uranium in in the world with some very deep expertise there, not just uh, the large companies that you've heard of like Cameco and and Arano, but uh, some of the some of the junior mining companies that are doing a lot of promising work right now, like Denison Mines and uh, 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 next next energy. We uh, it goes from from fuel right to uh, the operators of uh, nuclear plants. About fifteen percent of uh, Canada's uh, electricity comes from nuclear. It's, uh, we've we've uh, been doing this in Canada with the CanDo technology uh, for about uh, uh, sixty uh, odd years now. Sixty 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 some years. Uh, the association has been in existence since um, since tw- since uh, 1960. Uh, we have uh, in, in incredible uh, incredible uh, supply chain uh, that we represent. Uh, we we uh, work with the uh, uh, nuclear laboratories. There are members as well. We do some incredible work with. Uh, um, the management of our of our waste and and spent fuel. Uh, we've got um, really innovative work being done by small modular reactors, next generation uh, nuclear, including a, a fusion company, General Fusion, that people know about. If you want to look even further out, uh, we're doing amazing work in isotopes, uh, medical isotopes, and so we represent um, a number of the companies that are doing that as well. So you can see we've got the we represent the 
the full uh, the full cycle from cradle to grave for nuclear, as well as a lot of the innovation that's going on, and and then all of the services and supply chains that that participate in that. You were telling me a few months ago when we spoke that you were looking to to build communication lines with the investment community. How would you define success there in the in the near to medium term, and and really, you know, what's the what's the impetus for um, for that effort? Well, you know, success, uh, in my view, Mark, with the financing community here in, in Canada would, would be, you know, in the immediate term, what it is, is uh, a recognition that there are developing opportunities to invest in nuclear. Firstly, you know, we were, I'm sure we'll talk about the refurbishments of our nuclear existing plants that are going on. Uh, right now, and and there, you know, there's an investment that's happening there. But there's a lot of um, projects that are being developed and deployed and planned uh, right now um, with the small modular reactors, and and now uh, looking at some new large uh, reactor sites. But these are real projects on the small modular reactor side. We'll we'll be speaking about those. So, short term, the financing community needs to realize that there are projects that are now, um, you know, beginning to be developed. And in in fact, you could say construction has started in terms of site preparation for a number of these projects. So there are actual projects. We need recognition there that 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 has that has to be done. Um, and that there is opportunity there. And and then we need uh, the uh, financing community to get their head around the the uh, the, the the potential risks and, and rewards. And importantly, if, if we're talking about this medium term, Mark, I think we need we need to realize that the public and private uh, investment communities are going to have to work together to get these first of a kind projects off the ground when it comes to, to small modular uh, small modular reactors. So so right now it's um, it's recognition that these projects are going to happen. It's uh, familiar, uh, familiarizing the investment community with the, the technologies and the opportunities and the projects that are underway. And then it's this joint discussion between industry, public policymakers and, and funding and the private funding so that we can look at at de-risking these uh, first-of-a-kind projects to the extent that the the private sector is willing to, to come into the game. That would be success. Mm-hmm. Where do you think the biggest gap exists in in educating or or getting you know buy-in from the investment community large nuclear projects of late uh, have have had a, a a terrible track record uh in in the free world right in terms of cost and time overruns which uh, have left have left a bad taste in the mouth of uh the the investment uh, community and then the small modular reactors while uh, very promising, uh, are uh, unproven, right, and are going through a first-of-a-kind build-out. And, and as I said, Canada is a leader in that area. So on one hand, it, it seems to me that uh, with large reactors, you've got this proven technology and a questionable business case. Uh, and then with small modular reactors, you've got a, a very promising business case and an unproven technology, right? And and so for the, the financing community to... Uh, to be exploring small modular reactors and revisiting uh, large uh, reactors is quite challenging. And uh, this needs to be done, I think, under the context of everyone understanding that there is going to be a lot of new nuclear being built, uh, large and small, in Canada and uh, in the United States and globally. Uh, and uh, with that certainty, and it is a certainty, um, there there comes the 
the conclusion that we have to be able to make this work uh, for the the private financing community to unleash those dollars, especially uh, in the small modular reactor space where it's it's more accessible and the projects are 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 more bite sized and and smaller. So there's a need to solve this, and when there's a need to solve it, I'm I'm confident that we're going to be able to um, to bring together the the public and private sides with the industry to be able to solve it. And I, I know that we'll do it successfully because we have to. We were chatting earlier about a, a recent outlook from the Ontario system operator projecting, I think you said 18 gigawatts of incremental nuclear. Can, can you talk about the timeline there? What was the, what was the study that, what was involved in that study and, and how, you know, given your background in renewables, how do renewables fit into that mix? And is there a threshold where you know we can only have so many renewables, and what's your what's your thought on the range of contribution of new of renewables versus nuclear to the overall grid? Well, firstly, Mark, let me say you know I think what we're seeing here in Canada and it's being reflected globally. Um, United States is a good example of this as well. Is policymakers are are coming to the conclusion have come to the conclusion that we need to reach a net zero future, right, and that. Uh, decarbonizing our electricity systems, uh, growing them so that we can fuel switch um, uh, other sectors that are are dependent on fossil fuels, whether it's transportation or building heating or industrial processes. I mean, policymakers are there. We we see this coming out of uh, the United Nations COP discussions and and, and other places. Uh, We've set targets as as nations to to decarbonize and reach a net zero future. Uh, But what we haven't seen until very recently is on the electricity side, any any way, um, a, a, a sort of catching up of the planning, actual planning, systems planning, uh, uh, that needs to be done to achieve that net zero future, and what we're seeing right now is um, is 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 the system operators actually catching up to the policymakers in terms of doing those projections of what is actually needed to, uh, to be built uh, to reach that net zero future, both in terms of decarbonizing our existing uh, grids, but also building a- additional capacity that will be needed to fuel switch in different sectors. So Ontario, which you mentioned, is a good example of that. Uh, it's the Canada's largest uh, economic uh, province, um, uh, economic uh, region. And, um, you know, uh, it has just come out with its its latest projections on how we're going to decarbonize and, and reach a net zero future, and it is calling for um, it is calling for an additional uh, 18 gigawatts of uh, nuclear to be built out uh, in order to to meet that uh, to meet that demand. You know that that's in the context of uh, a grid that is today has a capacity of about. 42 gigawatts. So Ontario has a installed capacity of about 42 gigawatts. Uh, Our systems operator now projects that we're going to need 88 gigawatts of of electricity, all of it clean by 2050. And uh, 18 gigawatts of that new, you know, 46 gigawatt incremental clean electricity is going to be nuclear. uh, And then some significant amounts of wind and hydro uh, and we'll have to bring hydrogen in there as 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 well, Mark. So, um, but just to to finish on this and in, in answering your question, the Ontario grid really does have a variety of uh, 
clean technologies on it, um, and we need all of them. Uh, we need all of them in, in the right mix to be able to make a resilient uh, grid that uh, is going to provide as much clean electricity as we need. And, and in Ontario's case, that's nuclear working very closely with uh, hydro, wind, uh, solar, and all of them working together uh, to, to help produce the hydrogen we're going to need. Was there any prescription in that outlook around what type of nuclear technology would be employed? So are we talking about small? Are we talking Great about question. advanced? Great question. Well, you know, a lot of the industry and policy attention has been focused on small modular reactors in Canada uh, over the last, uh, you know, three years in particular. And as I said, uh, we'll probably talk about some of the projects that are being developed and, and deployed right now uh, with various technologies, exciting stuff. But what this uh, forecast, this uh, plan from the systems operator has telegraphed to policymakers in Canada is that we're going to need large nuclear as well as small. In the Canadian context, large nuclear is back on the menu. And uh, it's going to uh, only increase in, um, in uh, relevance as we see other um, systems operators coming out with their new forecasts about how we're going to meet the generation uh, needs uh, and the growing demand for clean electricity as we go forward. So. So you're going to see um, you're going to see now, uh, you know, uh, in Ontario certainly, and increasingly in other provinces, uh, planning beginning for um, for large nuclear as well as small. Okay, great. W would any of those larger ones potentially use can do? Well, that's a great question. There's a, a very um, long, uh, proud uh, history of can do here in 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 our nation. The existing and the operating plants uh, here in 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 Canada uh, are all can-do uh, technology uh, in various uh, you know various sizes. Uh, it's a heavy water technology that that does not use uh, enriched uh, uranium, and you know we've got five plants here and and 22 reactors. As I said, all of them all of them can do. We also have a refurbishment uh, project going on here in Ontario of uh, about 10 of our units. It's a very large infrastructure project uh, in Canadian terms, $26 billion, uh, which is extending the, the, the lives of the Darlington and Bruce plants into, uh, you know, in some cases into the 2060s. Uh, we've just, uh, you and I were, were speaking just before we started this, uh, this, this uh, recorded conversation, Mark, about the decision now to look at extending the life of Pickering, another uh, another plant here in, in Ontario. But my, my point is that these can-do plants, the refurbishments, which are now uh, well underway, are proceeding on time and on budget. And um, we have a, a, a very robust supply chain that is supporting the refurbishment of these can-do reactors and a long history in can-do. So it's uh, sort of... Um, Backing into answering your question, which is, you know, if can do uh, can be competitive with some of the other large technologies that are out there, uh, we have uh, a lot of experience with it, and uh, we have a, a supply chain that is really geared up for working on can do. Um, so it will certainly be a contender. That being said, um, you know, we may be speaking later about uh, Cameco. Uh, Acquisition with Westinghouse, along with uh, with uh, uh, of Westinghouse, uh, right along with uh, one of the Canadian uh, financial 
uh, funds here, Brookfield, right, uh, Mark, uh, Mark Carney. And, uh, you know, that that's the AP-1000 and the Avinci technologies, but the AP-1000 is a the large one. Uh, we, we know that uh, EDF and uh, the Koreans have viable technologies there that are interested in the Canadian market. So, uh, so it's to be determined, uh, to be determined, and and uh, much of this will come down to both um, uh, cost and and also timing, right? Uh, what can be done quickly? Let's talk a little bit more about the refurbishments because it's it's interesting how much Canada is leaning into this, and I'm I'm curious if there's anything unique about CanDo that um, lends itself to refurbishment or is there anything just in the way these plants were constructed or how Canada thinks about nuclear assets versus the rest of the world? So the the success that we're having with these refurbishments um, has a lot to do with our familiarity with CanDo. And uh, as I said, this multiple decades of, of working with CanDo and, and understanding it and, and modernizing it as we went along, you know, making incremental improvements. So familiarity has been important. But Mark, I'd say the, the, other, the other thing that's been, that's been really astounding is the collaboration that is going on between the utilities, you know, Bruce Power. Uh, which is uh, essentially a private company owned by Omers and um, and uh, TC Energy, and then uh, Ontario Power Generation, who owns the Darlington facilities, and and uh, they're a crown corporation. But the the collaboration, the sharing of best practices, and even personnel that is going on uh, in lockstep with um, refurbishing these units. Uh, has been resulting in some incredible efficiencies. I mean, in in many cases, allowing these uh, these utilities to beat their forecasts in terms of time and cost. And then we're seeing that same bubbling up of um, sharing of best practices and and uh, efforts uh, by the supply chain. And we got a very very healthy supply chain here. So there's there's this there's this um, understanding that. The refurbishments uh, represent the bedrock on which Canada's nuclear innovation in small modular reactors and isotopes in other areas is succeeding, that we need to succeed with these uh, refurbishments in order to keep the public trust so that we can allow nuclear to expand and deliver to its full potential. And you're seeing an industry here in Canada that is collaborating to make that happen. And I mean that very genuinely. I don't know if this happens in many other industries, but... um, you know, uh, obviously a lot of fierce competitors and and uh, uh, in in the industry, but but there's also this coopetition that's going on, uh, understanding that we really need to succeed here, and and uh, we are succeeding, so that's important. Pickering is, I guess the 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 story is right. We're extending it to 26, but there's an evaluation going on about a refurbishment that could take it another 30 years into the future. What What's that evaluation process like? Is the decision all about cost? And I think that's for the reactors five through eight at Pickering. Is there any hope for reactors one through four, which I think are on, on schedule to retire in 2024? Well, let me say first, you know, Ontario is in a, in a bind. <laughs> we, we have, uh, uh, you know, we, we spoke about this, projection by the the systems operator needing to go from 42 gigawatts today to 88 gigawatts in 2050 and making sure that all of its uh, emissions free you know how do you how do you accomplish that while you know phasing out uh, while phasing out pickering which is um, 
represents uh, several gigawatts of, of clean electricity. It's challenging to do. The business case for looking at uh, refurbishing Pickering has changed very significantly. I mean, I think I think a decade ago, um, you know, most system, the systems operator here in Ontario and most systems operators in Canada would have said we don't need more electricity generation. And so, you know, we can we can look at retiring Pickering and things have changed very dramatically. And Mark, I'd also say what we what we need to build or what we need to maintain uh, has changed as well, right? We, we don't have the same options that we had before. Uh, here in here in Ontario, uh, sticking with Ontario, we phased out all of our coal-fired electricity generation um, uh, several years ago. It used to represent about 25% of our electricity generation, uh, mostly through incremental nuclear power. Uh, 90% of that coal was, was replaced with nuclear, and we phased it out. But the the point being that you know even if even if coal was really cheap to build, uh, we're not going to be building that out right because of the emissions associated with it. We need to be building carbon free um, electricity. So, um, and in addition to that, we we need to make sure that the balance of clean electricity in our systems is uh, is is well maintained. You can't you can't uh, you can't have too high a penetration of renewables or intermittent sources. So you get a, an unstable grid. Um, and similarly, uh, we don't want to build massive amounts of new gas without uh, there being um, you know. Uh, Without the because of the emissions. So, in the Ontario context, what we're what you're looking at at uh, at, at uh, doing with Pickering is uh, being put through a different lens. It's um, how cost competitive is this is this based on what we need um, from an attributes point of view, and within a time frame that that is meaningful to us. And it, it's my um, it's my understanding that when uh, when the province looks at Pickering and uh, the economics around it uh, in this new context, uh, the nuclear refurbishment at Pickering will prove to be economic. So uh, you know this this is will be the subject of um, of Ontario Power Generation study around the economics of it. Uh, but uh, to me, I think the you know, the, the calculus today is different than it would have been 10 years ago as to whether it's economic or not. Great. Well, before we jump into talking about SMRs, I just want to ask you to comment a little more, if you could, on on the radioisotopes and sort of what that effort entails. Um, I think Bruce Power is, is producing some of those. And um, one of the one of the thoughts is there's a lot of drugs that are under development. If, and if there is success, um, that could be a pinch point in supply. Uh, for those drugs, so I'm curious if you have any thoughts on on that and what the outlook is, you know, over the the next several years here. There is a growing demand for for medical isotopes, as you point out, Mark, and and I'd say that there there is already a pinch uh, globally uh, with uh, the the uh, provision of um, of medical isotopes, just given current demands. Um, Canada is a, a world leader in the production of isotopes. It has been for a number of decades. For example, we produce 70% of the world's uh, cobalt-60, which is uh, you know used to sterilize uh, all sorts of uh, one-time medical equipment. Uh, but more than that, uh, we have a history of uh, nuclear laboratories and academic in, in, uh, academia institutions that have been producing a variety of uh, isotopes 
um, you know, life critical um, uh, supplies of, of isotopes in all sorts of different areas for different applications. Uh, what's exciting, and I think what you're referring to is uh, Bruce Power and uh, now on Ontario Power Generation and um, some of our uh, some of our larger uh, supply chain companies like BWXT Canada that acquired Nordion. They're beginning to produce new types of isotopes from operating reactors. So in addition to this work that's been going on uh, through the decades at uh, in sort of laboratory settings um, with very small uh, laboratory reactors to create isotopes, we're now beginning to har harvest new types of isotopes from operating can-do reactors. And um, this is, has been a very exciting uh, development for, for lots of different reasons. And uh, market demand for these things is is going to be uh, is going to be only growing in the future. So very promising area for the Canadian industry here, and, and I think good news for um, for folks who need this type of medicine and treatment. Is is it something that's unique to Candu, where you can this can be a byproduct of the power generation, um, or or is that is that just a, a typical of any reactor that that could produce isotopes that can produce power in isotopes or is there something unique to Candu that that lends itself to this? My understanding is that Candu uh, lends itself to it. Um, I'm not a technical expert in this area, so I don't know. Uh, uh, I don't know exactly the rationale for that, uh, Mark. But um, we certainly see that the the Candu reactors are more accessible for this type of isotope um, production, which is why we're seeing the innovation here. Switching over to talking about the SMRs um, and the and the opportunity, so. Canada has been supportive of, of SMR um, development. There's a small modular reactor action plan that I'm aware of. Um, perhaps you've got some other initiatives that that you'd like to mention, but maybe just talk about the background here and the philosophy um, and, and sort of what the what the level of support is for SMRs in Canada. I think Canada did something important uh, when it when it launched the SMR roadmap initiative. This was about seven years ago. Our um, our federal government, through Natural Resources Canada, which serves as our Department of Energy, reached out to industry and uh, and said, "Look, let's let's work together with um, all of the stakeholders across Canada and see if there is a see if there is a, a, a roadmap here, an opportunity, a pathway to." to develop and deploy small modular reactors that uh, that gave a sense of purpose to to the industry and to uh, several provinces uh, in terms of uh, working together to look at the application of small modular reactors to help meet our energy transition needs um, so it, it it provided structure and it organized uh, our our industry and policymakers around uh, a way forward for small modular reactors. You know, we don't want to spend too much time on this here, but the, the the small modular reactor, the SMR roadmap, has been now emulated by other countries because it uh, because of the way that it has coordinated federal and provincial levels of government with our regulator, with uh, our with our industry and with our supply chain and with our eventual customers and in indigenous peoples around small modular uh, reactors. It, it's uh, created a common vision, which over the last three years we've been able to execute on. And, uh, you know, Canada has the advantage of being a relatively small nation. Um, and it is uh, much of the activity here on the electricity side, on the nuclear side, is driven by the, the, 
the crown utilities in the provinces. And so, so we've been able to push this collaboration and this coordination to, to, to pretty extreme levels. And it's, it's resulted in, uh, in us um, being, I would say the world leader uh, now uh, in, in the free world anyway, in terms of the development and deployment of small modular reactors. Um, and, and indeed what we've seen is four of our 10 provinces uh, now have uh, plans for the deployment of small modular reactors in different sectors, different sizes, different technologies. Uh, they're being very supported by the federal government in pursuing this. Uh, we have a, a very, um, a very uh, respected regulator who um, is able to assess um, these new technologies and uh, and work with the technology providers to to sort of purpose uh, purpose fit these technologies into the regulatory system. And the federal government has now been funding the regulator to fast track that work. And uh, what we've seen as a result are announcements like the one from Ontario Power Generation that they will connect to the first 300 megawatt small modular reactor, a General Electric Attache unit to uh, the grid in 2028. And then we see uh, at least three or four more units uh, being done in conjunction with that in Ontario. Saskatchewan has announced that it will be rolling out three or four of this same uh, unit. And uh, similarly, we've got other technologies, including fourth gen technologies that are um, that are now uh, being going through the first of a kind uh, uh, build out. So a lot of exciting stuff happening here in Canada on the SMR front. That 2028 reactor, this is the one where there's a billion dollars of government support. This is this is the Darlington reactor. Can you talk a little bit about that? That seems like this is like a, a government loan. Are there other funds available? Like I think about in the US, I guess I keep comparing everything to what I know in the US, but mm-hmm. we've got the loan program office, right? And that's a got hundreds of Junior billions shop, of dollars yeah. of authorization to to fund these things. What is right. the what is the capacity look like and the appetite look like for public funding? And then, you know, what what does the private side end up being in terms of a contribution? Our, our private uh, the, the, the our private side if I can include uh, public utilities in that they've been forging ahead for the last uh, the last several years uh, making investments in a vacuum of of, uh, of public policy and, and support so you know we had that SMR roadmap in place uh, industry drove ahead I think you know ahead of government um, provincial and federal to start making investments and plans so that we wouldn't lose time and now what we see is the provinces and the federal government have caught up. The significance of that billion dollars uh, from the Canada Infrastructure Bank in, in low interest loans to Ontario Power Generation for the GE Itachi uh, first of a kind, um, you know, uh, yeah, a billion dollars, that's 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 uh, in, in, in low interest loans, that's great. But the, the significance of it really, uh, Mark, is it's the, the government's tangible indication that they are fully behind um, nuclear. And this is just part of the story. Um, We had our fall economic statement, which is the mini budget um, that came out in November that has announced um, an investment tax credit for small modular reactors. And now we are in the process of extending that investment tax credit, 30% investment tax credit to large nuclear and to uh, crown corporations as well as as private corporations. So we're we're seeing that work through into our budget, which is happening this spring in 2023. 
We've seen millions of dollars um, invested in small modular reactor technology through our strategic innovation fund, the federal government strategic innovation fund. I mean, Moltex, uh, based in New Brunswick there, the molten salt reactor, uh, received $50 million uh, just recently. Um, I think we saw $20 million uh, go to terrestrial, maybe a 27, almost $30 million going to Westinghouse's Vinci. Uh, we expect more announcements out of them. So the there's been a there's been a, a very uh, very significant um, uh, gelling of federal support, both financial and policy wise, behind nuclear over the last uh, uh, over the last eighteen months or so, and it's translating into the sort of uh, financial announcements that you saw. If I could just say, Mark, I, I think it's worth your listeners watching what happens here with the investment tax credit in in Canada. Uh, as I said, 30% uh, investment tax credit, which is going to um, uh, be partially Canada's response to the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, right? I mean, good good on the, on the Americans for, uh, for having uh, set a, a, a very uh, ambitious goal uh, and, and ambitious program with the, you know, $369 billion worth of incentives that's going out to clean energy and you're seeing you're seeing nations like Canada which are uh, beginning to level up to that standard and so we're doing it in our own Canadian uh, made way but it uh, it, uh, it, uh, it 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 appears that Canada is going to be able to uh, match that sort of uh, incentive framework and treatment with its own combination of things including this investment tax credit I want to go back to the Darlington SMR and just the, I guess the question that I had was, you know, you rattled off several other plans that are out there. You know, I think uh, OPG wants to do another three. You mentioned other provinces, Saskatchewan comes to mind. When could we see another announcement like a Darlington come forward? Is there, you know, that, that seems to be a, a firm project that's really on track. Um, is there, is there a second or a third project that you would point out that's, you know, maybe a moving forward very quickly and we could see an announcement in the next 12 to 18 months? Yeah, I, I think it's it's no longer, you know, I don't think it's a, a secret that um, Ontario Power Generation is going to be building out more than one unit at uh, Darlington of the GEH Hitachi, right? So so a lot of focus being given to this uh, 300 megawatt uh, unit being um, attached in 2028, but the other ones will be attached in rapid succession. Uh, Saskatchewan has announced uh, that they are uh, deploying three to four of the same unit and they're working with Ontario Power Generation to achieve that and they're going through site selection right now so so they've selected the technology they're going through site selection um, they're looking at the early 2030s for their first uh, uh, for their first unit to be um, hooked up so I think what's important here is that that just in those two provinces alone uh, we're looking at a fleet approach for these GE Attache units, right? So we're looking at, you know, a minimum of six, probably uh, eight, uh, you know, over the next, uh, um, you know, decade or so, or just more than a decade, uh, which which means that you're going from first of a kind to to uh, to a, a scale, a fleet uh, that are going to enable the the sort of cost efficiencies that that uh, you can get out of these uh, small modular reactors. So, um, you know, a lot of a lot of attention and focus being given to ensuring that we get these first ones right and that we have a fleet here in Canada. That being said, um, 
as a first mover with GE Hitachi, uh, Canada has been able to extend uh, the the agreements it has through Ontario Power Generation and GE Hitachi into other countries as well. I think Poland has announced that they're going to build 10 of these units in cooperation with uh, Ontario Power Generation and Hitachi. We see Tennessee Valley Authority, uh, Jeff Lyash, uh, the CEO over there, has now announced that they're going to be uh, building out the GE Attache models as well. I think it's worth noting for your audience that, uh, that Jeff Lyash used to be the CEO of Ontario Power Generation, right? So so Ken Hartwick here uh, in, in Ontario and Jeff Lyash are working very closely together around uh, you know, deploying this technology. That's exciting. Um, and then uh, we, we have a number of other announcements as uh, well as some partnerships that have been made between the utilities and other technologies. And in New Brunswick, which I don't want to skip over, uh, Mark, because you know in New Brunswick, uh, can do reactors uh, operating there, about a third of their electricity. But they are um, they're nurturing, uh, developing two technologies, two Gen 4 technologies. Um, you know, Moltex, which I mentioned, a molten, molten salt uh, technology, and, and Arc Energy, which uh, are both uh, fourth generation uh, technologies with different attributes um, that, that, uh, uh, that are really needed in the Canadian context. And so um, a lot of partnerships and uh, sort of customer development activities that are going on with those technologies. X Energy has signed a partnership agreement with um, Ontario Power Generation. I know that Terrestrial, a Canadian SMR company, has, has signed an agreement uh, uh, in, in Alberta. So, yeah, uh, lots of things happening. Uh, two of our laboratories are building out first-of-a-kind micro-reactors, one from Ontario Power Generation called Global First Power, and then uh, in Alberta through the... Uh, Advanced uh, Advanced Research Council. They're building out a Westinghouse of Vinci, so a lot of activity going on here. Yeah, uh, there certainly is. I, I guess you know, ask this question to to Maria and and other stakeholders with all these sort of SMR designs and advanced reactor designs out there. It seems like you know there we could be at a place where ten years from now we've got I don't know 10, 15, 20 different designs running around, but that's not usually how things end up, right? It usually focuses down to maybe one or two or three core designs. And it seems like GE Hitachi really has a first mover position right now, but you know, there's a bunch of other irons in the fire. I'm just kind of curious how you see this playing out. You know, there's there's some thought that maybe certain reactors have are better purposed for industrial activities and others are better for power gen. So just kind of curious how you see all of this playing out. I'm sure that an element of this is going to be that there will be winners and losers, but but to your point, and and, and the competitive process will will play this out for us. Uh, but to your point, Mark, the the interesting thing about small modular reactors is that it, it's it's not just a competition to find that one small modular reactor that's going to be the silver bullet. As it turns out, there are so many applications for these small modular reactors that we're going to see in a number of um, dominant technologies in different spaces. Um, GE Hitachi is, is, is early out of the gates with a, a relatively large small modular reactor, right? A 300 megawatt reactor is, is pushing the limits of what small is. It's, um, it's a third generation technology. It's a fairly proven technology. It's a light water reactor. Uh, and it's great at producing uh, electricity in a, in a, in a, a smaller uh, chunk, but it's a it's a it's a lower temperature reactor, right? What some of the some of the exciting applications for small modular reactors 
you know, have to do with the very high temperature heat that some of these fourth generation reactors produce. And you can take that scalable high temperature heat uh, and be using it in heavy industry, um, steel, cement, uh, extraction of oil and gas. Uh, or uh, you can be using it to uh, produce smaller amounts of electricity or hydrogen or be doing all of those things at the same time, right? Scale it to uh, an operation like a mining site that requires hydrogen for its heavy transport and electricity for its for its uh, operations and high temperature heat for its industrial processes. I mean, they're they're like a Swiss army knife. So these these different technologies represent different size and limits. So we're going to see we're going to see dominant technologies emerge in these different size tranches. And then we're going to see dominant technologies emerge in the different attributes, specifically high temperature heat versus, uh, versus uh, simply electricity production. So yes, um, the, the, the field will, will thin out, uh, but there will be multiple technologies that are needed for different applications. One one thing that occurs to me as we're talking about fourth gen, you know, a lot of those reactors will be using Halu fuel as a sort of the the starting point for their fuel, which in the U.S., well, we really outside of I guess Russia, there really isn't any meaningful production of Halu, and particularly for Canada, used to using Candu, where you're basically putting the un, unenriched right. uranium into the reactor, so you don't really have a need for enrichment now, but you could be needing significant enrichment that isn't available anywhere someday if you're looking for the fourth gen. So how is Canada helping manage that, you know, fuel supply roadmap? It's a it's a consuming uh it's a consuming issue for for the free world. <laughs> right? I I'm, I forget the stats now of how much uh you know of the uranium uh came from Russia including enriched and advanced fuels right from Russia. And the the need now to um, to become independent of that fuel supply uh, to get the enriched uranium that we need, and then to your point, get into these advanced fuels like Halu. So a lot of activity uh, going on now, and a lot of bilateral discussions between governments in terms of how to do this. Canada and the United States have. Um, uh, have been spending a lot of time looking at this issue and, and considering uh, uh, considering different uh, manners of collaboration, right? As I mentioned, Canada is the world's second largest exporter of, of natural uranium. We've got some great processing uh, facilities here, uh, but we don't do any enrichment here. Uh, the, the U.S., um, you know, uranium not as uh, available, but already enriched uh, capacities to do enrichment. And so it, it makes a lot of sense to look at a sort of continental fuel cycle. I think that for other reasons, um, including fuel security and, and, and things like that, 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 that we may broaden out this Canada-U.S. continental approach to include other allies as well, whether it's France and, and other, uh, and the U.K., uh, you know, nuclear nations. But but yeah, we, we do have to solve um, this, the fuel cycle uh, issue. And um, uh, while I'm not part of the bilateral uh, discussions, what I can say is that they're becoming quite advanced now in terms of how government uh, government to government is, is going to support this ecosystem. And I think um, the missing part of the puzzle now is how we're going to keep the private industry whole. 
in terms of uh, producing the those those new types of fuels. We've got we've got smaller contracts that have been issued by uh, the U.S. government and other governments to produce smaller amounts of it, and it's it's leading up to uh, more c- commercial production of HALU and and other types of of fuels. I wanted to go back and talk about costs because um, you had mentioned the the sort of first of a kind going to nth of a kind on on the, the SMRs. I'm I'm curious if you have a sense of you know what OPG and others are thinking that that cost structure would look like for the first of a kind and ultimately the nth of a kind and how many we need to build before we can really get to that that nth cost. So the I think the nth cost is going to depend on which technology we're speaking about. In the, in the case of uh, GE Itachi, as, as you mentioned, Mark, it's a, it's a Gen 3 uh, technology. It's a larger small modular reactor, sort of more more proven uh, technology that, that, that does a, 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 you know, a certain function. Uh, because of its size and, and its, its uh, pedigree, a relatively small number of units, if you asked, you know, Ontario power generation, um, are going to lead to the, the, the sort of cost effectiveness that we're looking for from nth of a kind. So it could be that five, six, seven of these units actually bring you down to uh, the cost uh, competitiveness that you're looking for. And, and and that's what I think the business case is showing. So even in, within the Canadian market itself, there's a high degree of confidence that this fleet approach with a small number of units is going to to give us that that cost effectiveness we're looking for. I think nth of a kind for other technologies is going to be different. You know, how, how many... Um, how many of the micro reactors do you have to produce in a in a in a manufacturing facility and put on the back of a shipping truck to to reach the an nth of a kind? So, so I'm, I'm um, I, I I think the the uh, the industry and the community just has to look at it on a on a case by case basis. And when you look at the plans that are in place now, so I'm thinking more of like the GE Hitachi type reactors or the the 300 megawatt power reactor applications. What do you? What are the biggest risk factors in your mind to getting those kind of constructed on time and on budget? Um, I mean, certainly that's the point of a small modular reactor is that it has more certainty on on time and on budget. But I think investors have a lot of questions about that. So I'm just kind of curious how you're thinking about it. Not exactly sure how to to answer that, other than to say you know we're addressing in 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 the Canadian context we're we're addressing the the first of a kind risk by selecting a, a technology that has largely been proven, or elements ha- of which have been proven and already um, uh, uh, licensed and approved, right? From a timing perspective, because that's obviously certainty around um, timing of these projects and, uh, and getting approvals that you're looking for is a big risk that we're trying to to manage. To your question, Mark. Uh, so, um, so the, the technology selection of GE, uh, you know, really plays into timing uh, certainty. And then the, you know, the other big risk factor, uh, which has a lot to do with uh, the the operator itself and uh, the client who's building this out. Um, with Ontario Power Generation, you know, you're working with a utility that has, you know, over. 60 years of experience in, in the nuclear sector and uh, is already demonstrated a very high uh, degree of success and sophistication around um, nuclear projects that it is building, operating, and now refurbishing. 
So I think we have the the sort of the right uh, the right client. Uh, we've got a, a technology that is um, has has minimized the the timing risk, and uh, we have a lot of attention uh, being given to ensure that the first one is completed on time and on budget. So I think you know importantly you have the the attention that's needed to make sure these uh, succeed. So th- those are some of the ways that we're trying to mitigate risk here. We talked about the the prospects that are out there. The the several for at OPG, uh, SAS Power, uh, we've got the X Energy and OPG. So, you know, maybe we could count up almost 10 of these or maybe a high single digit number that are really firm on the planning board. Where do you think this goes by, you know, 2040? How many SMRs do you think are are operating in, in Canada? What's the what's the expectation from from your group? I think the potential uh, market demand is enormous for these small modular reactors and uh, in the Canadian context. Um, so I'm not, I'm not trying to avoid the question or hedge too much. I'm not going to give a projection, but I, what, what I will say is this, the amount of incremental nuclear or, or clean electricity that has to be built in Canada is, you know, like other nations, uh, pretty extraordinary. We're going to have to probably double this, this, the amount of electricity generation we have by 2040, which is, you know, the, the number that you threw out to, uh, uh, the date that you threw out, we'll, we'll probably have to almost double the amount of electricity generation we have by then, because by 2050, we'll probably have to have tripled it. And in the Canadian context, uh, because, as I said, we're a small nation over a vast territory, uh, it means that many of our provinces can only accommodate smaller uh, electricity generation sources. So many of our provinces will not be contemplating um, large reactors. They'll be sticking with smaller reactors. And it's just a fact that the wind, solar, and water resources that are available, you know, province by province are going to vary, and that there are some provinces that are going to depend on nuclear and small modular reactors because they don't have the resources to, to be able to harvest uh, or harness enough of the other uh, of the other sources. So uh, as long as we get these first ones right in the Canadian, in this Canadian grid context, there's a lot of need for incremental nuclear and these small modular reactors will play that role. But what I'd like to say, Mark, is even perhaps more distinctly Canadian is this fact that uh, our economy is so heavily dependent on heavy industry and natural resource sectors, they need to be decarbonized. I mean, the, the challenge is a little bit different from what you face in the United States, right? I think you've got uh, a grid that is 60% fossil fuel driven right now. Is that is that fair to say? Maybe 60% yeah. fossil, 40, 40% non-emitting. In Canada, we're already at 83% non-emitting on our electricity grid. So we don't have this issue of, of needing to clean up the majority of our electricity grid before we start building new electricity. We have a little ways to go to to decarbonize our existing grid, and then we have to worry about doubling or tripling its capacity. But the the bigger challenge for us from our emissions profile, that's my point, our emissions profile right now, it's not coming from the electricity sector. It's coming from heavy industry, oil and gas extraction, mining, creation of steel, creation of cement, potash, etc. And it's in these contexts that Canada needs to deploy these high temperature heat, small modular reactors to decarbonize our our heavy industries and our natural resource sectors while at the same time producing the hydrogen that's required to 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 complement that effort so uh 
you're going to see the market demand uh, for small modular reactors in our heavy industry and natural resource sectors is a huge priority for Canada from a, from a policy and targets point of view for, for decarbonization. And I can tell you that the discussions that are happening now between the technology vendors and the operators on the nuclear side um, and these industries, oil and gas, mining, steel, cement, very advanced discussions happening right now for the deployment of these things. So so I'm very bullish on 2040 and uh, the penetration. Um, a lot is going to depend on making sure that these first-of-a-kind uh, technology deployments go well. That's great. John, you've been very gracious with your time. To wrap it up, I guess, kind of ask everybody to to talk about what investors should be expecting from in terms of headlines or announcements over the next 12 months or so. So is there is there anything that investors should be looking out for um, in terms of a catalyst or, or announcement that sort of verifies that Canada is on track with, with all the plans and deployments that we've been talking about? Yeah, I, I think generally uh, speaking, uh, your, your listeners should be watching the Canadian federal policy decisions that come out of uh, the budget and, and also moving forward. Uh, as I said, there's a intense effort underway to ensure that Canada levels up to achieve what the uh, Americans have done with the Inf Inflation Reduction Act. And that's not just with nuclear, with, it's with all uh, clean energy technology. So so look carefully uh, at, at the sort of um, incentives uh, that uh, we're rolling out to complement what we already have in place uh, when it comes to, to support for, um, you know, making it attractive to invest here in Canada, ensuring that it continues to be attractive to invest in clean energy and, and nuclear specifically. Look for that uh, investment tax credit treatment. Look at uh, at uh, what the government does in terms of leveling up its support for nuclear compared to renewables, because there are certain green bond treatments and manufacturing tax credits and things that have been extended to renewables, which need to be extended to uh, the nuclear sector. Uh, look for announcements from new sectors. Um, so we, we've seen the partnership agreements come out of the utilities with the technology vendors now. We see some uh, great support between the utilities, the governments, and these technology vendors, whether it's in New Brunswick with Multex Arc or you know, moving in through Ontario and, and Saskatchewan and Alberta with X-Energy and G. Itachi and Da Vinci and, and et cetera. Uh, but now start looking for announcements that come out of uh, sectors, whether it's oil and gas or steel, uh, mining, et cetera, about uh, customers that start appearing. I think that will be a, that will be a sure indication that uh, that we're we're beginning to move ahead. And then lastly, uh, keep an eye on on what the systems operators are beginning to project in terms of new generation and generation mixes. We've seen Ontario's latest one, which is calling for a doubling of generation, as we discussed, and 18 new gigawatts of electricity. Uh, I think we're going to see similar types of projections coming out of the other provinces, and that will be a good indicator of of where the generation is going to be built. Well, that that's fantastic. John, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. John Gorman, President and CEO of the Canadian Nuclear Association. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.